Hey everybody, welcome to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. I'm Christy Brower, here with my sister, co-host, and partner in crime, Katie Weaver. Hey Katie. Good morning. Hey, we. this is a very special pop-up episode. Yeah. As there is court for Chad Daybell this morning. That's right. I'm ready. Look. <laughs> clutching pearls. I'm wearing my clutching pearls clutch. for John, Bre- Careful. John Pryor. You don't want to clutch those so hard that they go skittering across the floor. Right. Good morning, Janet. Happen. Welcome. So today's hearing is, if you can believe it, a hearing to address John Pryor's motion to drop all the charges against Chad Daybell, which yeah. we know will not happen. However, this just- argument shall be hilarious. Let's just throw the whole damn thing out. Right. Right? We needed an apple to take a crack at it. I remembered my clutch and pearls, so at least you got something. <laughs> right? I, I didn't have an apple. I, I wish I did. Uh, you know what? We don't either. I ate the last one yesterday. <laughs> so. An apple and Oops. a stick. Yep. We could have uh, taken another crack at the apple, or but here we go. I don't know. <laughs> I still don't know what the hell he was trying to say, because that is not a... That's not a euphemism. Like, I don't know what he was talking about when he said. I, if it is, another it's not one I've yeah. heard. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. So we are just waiting for things to go live. The train wreck with legs. Huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. That's not this case. That's something else. Oh. That's that's a hater. <laughs> Oh, and that hater just went away. Oh, uh, I didn't so we're that just was waiting. A hater. Yeah, I'll explain later. Um, oh, great! I uh, hey Bianca, we're just Corn waiting for things to go live on the judges' YouTube channel. So we will be sharing shortly. But we know we've talked a little bit about this. There are several versions. Because John Pryor is nothing but thorough. Um, yeah. Another bite at the apple. There you go. Yes, that. But another crack at the apple? What yes. does that mean? You did read correctly. This is the filing. He filed this like more than a year ago. Yeah. More than a year ago. And they just are barely getting to it because, you know, everything with this case has uh, just drug on very, very slowly. It's crazy. I mean, you consider the Crumleys had pretrial this week. That's how much faster their case is moving along than this one. Yeah. And, yeah, of course, part of ridiculous. that is, you know, Lori's uh, mental status. But a part of it, too, is that the uh, ridiculous amount of time wasting and stupid filings that Mark Means put us through that has slowed all of this way down, you know, and his attention or, you know... A, <laughs> Constant, you know, intentions to uh, try to get the prosecutor dismissed. Yes, Janet. um, I just looked at crack at the apple on Urban Dictionary, (laughs) and it says it's a maneuver initiated during an intimate table dance. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you, John Pryor. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right. What is prior? Prior might actually have to be earned some money, earning some extra money for this case. I don't know. That's, it's a rumor I just made up, so it's not true, but. <laughs> <laughs> rumor I just made up. Oh, dear. Oh, that was very, very good, Janet. Thank you for looking that up because that just made my day. Now we know. Now <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I'm a little, I'm hoping this uh, doesn't all just play out in a breakout session. It shouldn't. This is parts of this trial that should certainly be uh, open to the public, but. You know, a lot of what he filed regarding this uh, filing, as well as all that other stuff, like to get all of the prosecutors kicked off and dropping the death penalty and all of that stuff, they were all, all of his briefs were sealed because of prejudicial information or some damn thing. Right. So I'm hoping that they don't close this proceeding. I hope so too, but it is not currently sealed. Um, so that we know of, yeah. We're going to see. Yeah. Well, part of this is that he is once again asking in individual filings for each prosecutor to be removed from the case. And there are three. Yeah. I mean, he's also saying that the one of the filings was that the grand jury has was seated improperly or not impartially or something. And mm -hmm. I mean, it just the. That one really interests me. Why? How would he even know that? Or are these just more it's um, just an accusation? Priors cracks at the apple to try to, uh, you know. Yes. I, the only thing he and Means have seemed to have is just attempts to uh, crack the armor in some way, you know. Right, right. They pick at the threads of the case to try to get something to unravel. And thus yeah. far, they've been completely unsuccessful. Just procedural stuff, because what defense do they have for, you know, the police and FBI finding the bodies of the children buried on Chad's property. I mean, yeah. it's just not, there's no defense for that. So now they're coming up with, you know, just ridiculous stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm dying over that, Janet. Uh, I knew that that was not like a regular euphemism, a bite at the apple. You got it. <laughs> That's the real one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that, Corin. That's so awesome. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, we're just, you know, as usual, waiting for the courts. Doesn't it feel like we're always waiting for the courts <laughs> for something? So uh someone uh that's way smarter than me brought up a point to me last night that I thought was really interesting about do we think that Lori uh is watching these proceedings? Yes, uh, because we thought we know that she has been. Mm -hmm. And is it making her nervous at all that Chad might be getting ready to turn on her? It does make you wonder for her to find out that he had applied to have their cases severed. That's mm -hmm. got to be. And she is watching them. We know that because mm -hmm. when the whole Mark Means and the state yeah. hospital debacle occurred, they talked about how she watches these mm -hmm. proceedings with her therapist. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure she does. I mean, I'm sure her attorney wants her to as well so that she's aware of what's going on. You would think so, for sure. Which I do think, uh, you know, I find that really interesting because at the end of the day, uh, I don't know. There, there's still a big part of me that thinks that uh, she won't believe that because she's just so damn arrogant. Mm -hmm. But I think it would still blow her mind to think that Chad would turn on her. Right. 
And that's possible. Yeah. Uh, That she just, and that's part of the reason why she's in a state hospital is because she can't accept what's happening. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing some things that make us think that she might not be that far from heading on back to jail. Yeah. Yeah. It really looks like maybe that's the case. I hope so. I hope so. I am. I do too. It's time to get this. Ready to see this move forward. Yeah. You know, if not for, you know, just the interest of justice for the Woodcocks. Yes. They were mm-hmm. so grateful that the trials weren't severed. Because mm-hmm. they were already be... so exhausted. They want to lay JJ to rest. They want to move on. And they want to see justice served. And they should get to see that. And and for Colby's sake, too. And all of the other family. Like, yeah. this just to be able to, to, to move on. But the longer it stretches out as well. The more of a chance that witness testimonies could fall apart or witnesses could, you know, fall off the grid or die or, you know, not be available for some other reason anymore. Things like that, that, you know, this needs to move forward. The the crime happened quite a long time ago now, and it needs to move forward. It does. It does. I did want to welcome um, some more chatters into the room. So we do have Janet, Corin, Bianca. Can't scroll for some reason. Oh, there we go. Indigo, Christy, Rhonda, Amy, Renee. Welcome, welcome. We're glad to have you here. Yeah. Um, if you're just joining, we're just waiting for the court to start their live stream. Hoping that this is truly live and not sealed. East Idaho News is also streaming, so I'm assuming that they... Uh, they're expecting um, it to be live. They're, yeah, they're expecting it to be live, so... Yep. So we think that it will be, but yeah, we've seen some things, you know, Lori had a, uh, a scheduling conference, uh, yep. which there have not been any of those since she has been in the hospital. Yeah. So that makes us think something's up. Also her mm-hmm. status was changed from incompetent to pending. Yeah. And so those are a couple of things. Plus the judge dismissed the whole idea of, severing the cases pretty quickly yeah it seemed to be and and it may um seem it seems as though maybe he knows because he would know better than anybody that she's on her way back for sure i mean of course he has to listen to all arguments and you know follow the the course of the law but i just i don't feel like he had any intention of severing ever no i don't either well prior really did not meet the uh meet his own umbrage at all what prior that wasn't his job he was the <laughs> one that filed it that right. was on the prosecution yeah, he sure did say that in his he? job yeah <laughs> which that's hilarious i mean the one time w- rob wood's face broke in that whole hearing was when he said that and wood rolled his eyes <laughs> sure his head. Uh, yeah as if <laughs> So, yeah, we do think, you know, this is all sort of leading toward that um, they are not going to have to delay again for Lori. Yeah. So we'll see. Hoping that's the case. We really are. And Amy, oh, here we go. Here we go. Okay. Oh, Amy, that's excellent news. Her brother's doing a whole lot better. Very glad to hear that. 
Fremont County Jail represented by counsel, Mr. Pryor. It's represented by attorney, prosecuting attorney, Lindsey Blake. Uh, Rob Wood is also attending for the prosecution and Rachel Smith uh, also attending on this remote Zoom hearing, Mr. Archibald, counsel for a co-defendant uh, case. We are conducting this hearing remotely. It's being live streamed on the court's YouTube channel for public access to the hearing. In addition, it's being recorded on the court's Zoom software as well as the FTR system. And there's a record being made by attendance of a court reporter who's making a transcript of the proceedings this morning. The hearing today is on a defendant's motion to dismiss the indictment due to failure to seat an impartial grand jury. I'll note that pleading was filed under seal in the case appropriately as it pertains to information relating to some argument on individual grand jurors whose uh, identifying information is to be kept confidential under the rule. However, this uh, court will conduct the hearing today with an instruction to counsel, which we will do in a separate breakout room on the record, but outside of the court's view or of the uh, public view to discuss the parameters of what I think should be argued in public or not throughout this hearing. Uh, procedurally going through how we got here, I'll note there was a motion to dismiss initially styled as a 12B motion filed on June 21st of 2021. Uh, there was an extension requested for that, which the court granted. That deadline was extended to September of last year, 2021. There was a renewed motion filed September 2nd. Uh, there were some objections filed by the state on November 8th to the continuance of the motion. There was a second renewed motion to dismiss filed on December 8th. And then the court issued an order on February 4th uh, stating that there would be this hearing held today on March 23rd, um, indicated that a memorandum in support needed to be filed no later than March 9th. Mr. Pryor timely filed his memorandum on March 8th as part of the motion. And at this point, the court has not received any written pleading or objection filed by the state. I would note that during a hearing, I did indicate that I intended to take argument on the motion today to keep the matter moving along. The state had requested this hearing to be continued and in lieu of continuance, I indicated that I'd be willing to allow argument on the motion today and for supplemental submission of briefing and authority to be submitted at a time to be determined at the conclusion of the hearing by the state. So uh, with that in mind and procedural history, we will go forward on the motion today brought by the defendant to dismiss the indictment. Uh, at this time then, I do want to conduct a first, what we'll call a breakout room, um, which is essentially a sidebar in the virtual world here on Zoom. And in that breakout room, I'm gonna discuss with counsel the scope of what I think ought to be referenced uh, in the public purview versus what needs to be kept confidential under the rule for grand juror secrecy. So at this time, Madam Clerk, if you would please arrange for the breakout room, we'll go in there and discuss that issue. Then we'll come back and commence with argument on the motion.
Yep. Well, damn, already. Well, but it's specifically for the um, grand jury. The grand jury, uh, grand jury members, individual yeah. people. That's mm-hmm. interesting. So we're going to wait and see how they're going to handle that. So uh, help me. That means that there's grand jurors that they're calling today or grand no. or grand jury testimony that they just don't want to share publicly yet. Right. It's stuff that he's objecting to. I see. Okay. Dur- grand, jur- grand jurors that he is objecting to. I don't know. Um, you know, they can't give their names. So right. we have to figure out how to communicate that without violating that. So we'll see what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this does not surprise, but it is a little frustrating. It is. And hopefully it won't take very long. Yeah. We know how that is with these guys. Yeah. Well, and as always, we want this to all be done fairly, but this also is very typical of the defense. I mean, they're going to tear apart anything they can mm-hmm. to try and, um, yeah, you know, to try and make their case. And so, right, this is one of them. They're going to question stuff like this. It's just like what's yeah. happening right now in the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. Mm-hmm. The Scott Peterson retrial. Yep. All that stuff saying, well, you know, these jurors, you know, did or said some inappropriate thing or they lied or whatever. Mm-hmm. These are the kind, I mean, I think Scott Peterson is a good example of it's not like there was a lot of uh, defense opportunities. Yeah. Um, you know, in these kinds of cases. So this is what they do. Oh, um, yeah. Pryor is not with Chad because Pryor lives five hours away. Yeah. And so he's not always present with him um, because of that. Yeah. So he's just appearing from uh, his office in Caldwell, Idaho. And uh, Chad's appearing from, of course, (sighs) Fremont County Jail. Mm -hmm. And he does look creepy and he does look stiff. That dark, om- ominous lighting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. He lives very far away. It's one of the reasons why we think the whole going after the severance was such a big deal for him is because they wanted to move the um, trial to Ada County, which is basically in Chad's back or in uh, Pryor's backyard versus five hours away for him. Yeah. Yeah. The never moving, the holding perfectly still is mm-hmm. weird and creepy, isn't it? Like. Very you creepy. sit there for that long and not shift or change positions or move mm-hmm. your head or something like nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's very weird. I mean, it's typical. I'm curious. You think about how a jury is going to react to that. Yeah. They're going to find him creepy as hell. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cause if he does make any facial movement, it is some weird leering smile. It is. Yeah. That- like the dude, Makes you think he's thinking about wearing your head as a hat or something. Yeah. And right. Your butt would go to sleep. Wouldn't you move and adjust a little bit? You're sitting in that same position for so long. I don't know. He's a very strange person. Well, honestly, he's pretty checked out himself. Oh, yeah, he is. I don't want to jinx anything. I don't want to see him heading off to the hospital to get spiffed up. But he seems pretty (laughs) checked out. Well, you think about that. He had himself convinced that he was a prophet and a god. Mm-hmm. And all this stuff, 
and God was going to, you know, be there for him in every way. And he's now mm-hmm. sat his ass in jail for 18 months. And so right. he's been in jail. Doubt his yeah. own divinity here. Right. Well, you'd think, but yeah, 19 months now he's been in jail. And of those 19 months, he's been in basically in solitary the whole time. Yeah. To keep him safe. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, people here do not like that guy. That's for sure. No. Well, and you know, uh, we didn't really cover it. We haven't talked much about it, but there was an incident at the Madison County Jail here about six months ago in the man, the males, men's, miles, <laughs> men's part where uh, an inmate was beat to death Yes, by another inmate. And right. I mean, it happens, you know, it and does. these are things that we do not want to see happen because we want these fools to stand accountable for their crimes but this actually one of those things happened here locally not too long ago it did yeah, yeah. so you can see why that's happening yeah prior yeah. is being very selfish mm-hmm. besides he would have a place to say as he is part owner of a house close to saint anthony right <laughs> he could just go stay in that house i mean who right? doesn't want to stay in that house <laughs> he, he's gonna go in there with a uh, roll of tape Make a tape line for Emma. This is my half of the house. This is your half of the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no kidding. How did Pryor get this case in the first place? Well, we don't know for sure, but we have a, we have an assumption. Yeah. Because of, it's because of Mark Means. Just... So Mark Means somehow managed to get on this case as the family law attorney part of the trio. So when Lori first came back, when she was first extradited back from Hawaii, there were three attorneys on her case. They were all from the Boise area. They were all high powered. Well, except for Mark, don't say that. Um, But they were, but they had specialties. So there was Edwina, uh, whose specialty was, they called her a pit bull in heels, uh, which was interesting because she really wasn't in court. Uh, She acted scared as hell, actually. But at any rate, there was her and there was another man from her firm that both of their, her specialty actually is unpicking a case. Mm. Her specialty is finding all of the little threads that she can pick out to try to unravel cases and get them dismissed. So that was her job. Uh, then there was another man from her firm who is a star criminal offense attorney. Uh, attor- wow. I don't know. I, I didn't <laughs> attorney, sleep well. Attorney. These puppies, uh, <laughs> the grand dogs, they're driving me crazy. Anyway, uh, criminal offense defense attorney. And then Mark Means. And Mark Means was the third leg and the person who... (laughs) Weakest leg of the stool. Yes, definitely. And uh, was there because of his specialty in family law. Because remember in the very beginning, Lori's rights were going to be severed to the kids. If she ever turned up with them, they were immediately... There was an emergency order for JJ to be handed right over to the Woodcocks. Right. Yeah, they were going to take those kids into... Well, for custody, state's custody, yeah, give them to family because, because they, she seemed unsafe, yeah. yeah. So that's how Mark got on the case. So, how does that uh, apply to Pryor? Well, Pryor and uh, Means used to share an office, yeah, they had a joint, uh, you know, shared space in Caldwell, Idaho, which is about 30 minutes outside of Boise. And so, we think that Pryor ended up on the case because of Mark. Yeah. And now, of course, Mark has been tossed and uh, our understanding is he's moved out of the state entirely. But uh, at any rate, that's the uh, that's the crux of it. That's how it happened. 
Yeah. Yep. That is how it happened. And I wonder sometimes if prior ruse the day <laughs> that this happened. I would imagine, but you get deep in a case like this and what else do you do? Yeah, but he, There's no choice now. Interesting and questionable decisions. You know, other attorneys that you hear on YouTube and whatnot talking about this case mm-hmm. cannot for the life of them understand how he ended up with Chad's house in his name. Yeah. They all say that is not done. That is not something that should be done. Like what? Yeah. That's what they did. Yeah. Yeah. It's on, it's public record. So we know what's happened. Mm-hmm. They so have they- not talked about Lori at all. We're actually in a breakout session right now while they talk about what they can talk about publicly because yeah. some of the information is sensitive because it is testimony from grand jury uh, witnesses. Well, no, it's not testimony. It's jurors, grand jury oh, jurors. jurors. That he, that, that, that see, one opposing. of his, yeah, one of Pryor's, okay. um, one of the things that he filed was that the grand jury was improperly vetted and that they had some biased people on the jury, on the grand jury. Yeah. Um, so that's, but they can't say those jurors' names. Mm-hmm. And so they have to figure out how to communicate about that mm-hmm. publicly. So I don't know if they're going to like number them maybe or something. I have never heard of a grand jury being thrown out. I have not either. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but I think it's very unusual. Mm-hmm. There's very, there's different rules for grand juries. And I, I think it's pretty, uh, it's a pretty long, big, long shot at this point. Because well, it's not the same. I mean, the defense does not get involved in it at all. No, they're not present. They don't get to know anything about it until, uh, and they may never know anything about it. That's what's interesting. If mm-hmm. uh, charges aren't actually, uh, you know, an indictment doesn't come down, a defense attorney may never even know what happened. Right. But if an indictment comes down, that's when they get to start learning, uh, you know, what happened in that proceeding. But mm-hmm. I've still never heard of an attorney being able to go, well, we don't like it was on that grand jury. So we think this whole thing better just be kicked out. Yeah, and a judge going, yeah, that seems legit because. My understanding of a grand jury is the way it is picked isn't specific to any one case. It's just right. a term that you serve. And so if that's the case, then it wouldn't matter if this was Chad's next door neighbor. You know, right. it you're chosen to serve on the grand jury regardless. And that's how it works. Now, if I'm wrong about that, somebody can certainly uh, correct me. But that's my understanding of the way, at least in Idaho, a grand jury is chosen and how it works. Yeah, they'll have a grand jury seated. Mm-hmm. And if there's a grand jury seated and then they can throw cases at it. And that's yeah. what appears to have happened here. And I guess we'll probably learn more about that today because the yeah. whole grand jury thing has been super duper secret. Yeah. So, you know, all we know is we did get to see a witness list of who testified. Yeah. But that's as far as we know so far, because the rest of that is privileged protected information because it's very important to the trial itself yeah so yeah Yeah. one of the things i you know that i do appreciate about this case is how much i have learned about the legal system because of this case yeah better understanding like how this stuff happens Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely you know prior prior made a statement to the judge last week 
that if he denies one of these motions and what does he have about six of them that he yeah. will just then argue the next one and then the next one and then the next one mm -hmm. he intends to argue all of them so uh -huh. we'll see what the judge does with that it was such a bitchy little threat well oh, your was. honor if you deny this one i'm just gonna file this and if you deny that i'll just file this and i'm just gonna file 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 yeah the judge and is they, like okay that he would argue every single one of these because he's gonna argue about why to um, you know, why to kick off each prosecutor individually yeah. and, um, the grand well, jury thing and just the to Rachel dismiss Smith all thing. Oh, the Rachel yeah. Smith thing just gets me. Here's why. Oh, we might be coming back. Hmm. Nope. Yep. We are. It's just the judge. They're probably just getting loaded back into Zoom. <laughs> How you doing there, Judge Boyce? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a long witness list on the grand jury, and it's just yeah. a leaked list. Uh, so, well, and I'll see if I can find it and put some uh, stuff here. I know we shared it, but it's been a really long time ago. So I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, it was pretty much all the players in this case that you would expect, yeah. including some of Chad's children. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't know what's going on here, but we're all getting a nice view of um, Judge Boyce. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> okay, we're going to click off of here so that you guys can get the whole picture. All right, appears we're ready to go back on the record here. Uh, is the court reporter ready? Yes, Judge. Okay, thank you. All right, Mr. Pryor, as I previously mentioned, then uh, you have filed a motion that was uh, briefed and extensively briefed, and the court appreciates that. That was done on March 8th that you submitted that. So if you'd like to offer argument in support of your motion at this time, you may. And Judge, uh, I think I had indicated at the last hearing uh, on the 17th that my argument was going to be very brief. Uh, I provided a, a memorandum uh, with the court, a briefing of approximately 55 pages on this issue of the uh, motion to dismiss regarding the grand jury uh, and paneling. Uh, there were two accompanying briefs that relate to um, uh, uh, that motion to dismiss that I'd like the court to also consider as they relate to the uh, grand jury proceedings. Uh, but judge, uh, in general, uh, the motion to dismiss is based on the, uh, uh, under rule 6.6 .6 of the Idaho criminal rules, uh, as it relates to impaneling a, uh, a fair and impartial grand jury. I have, I have in, I think in significant detail, uh, set forth my reasons for that. Uh, I have no intention, obviously, of uh, disclosing the, the specifics of what I find um, objectionable that's laid out in my brief, I'd ask the court to take that into consideration. Uh, but judge, in terms of themes, there's been pervasive media coverage. Uh, that plays into the fairness and impartiality of the grand jury proceedings. Um, the prosecuting attorney in this case chose to utilize the grand jury proceeding. I did not choose to do that. They chose to do that. Uh, they could have just as easily impaneled a, uh, a preliminary hearing and, and chose to go that route. So the decision to use a grand jury was solely on the state. 
they have an obligation and a duty to impanel a fair and impartial grand jury. It's my position that that was not done. It's my position that the grand jury uh, was at least in, in some ways impartial or was not partial, was, was, was not impartial and was not unbiased. I've laid that out in my brief. The other issue, Judge, is this, is that the, the potential sentence in this case is death. The severity of this case, and this court uh, addressed that in a, in a prior decision that you uh, set forth, and I believe that was in your memorandum regarding the venue, and you cited that death is different. And the magnitude of the charge, Judge, is what's important here. And when you're considering the, the validity or the impartiality of a grand jury proceeding judge, you have to take consider you have to take into consideration the consequences as a result of that. So there needs to be a higher scrutiny and a higher review of the standards that are set forth. And given that, Judge, I, I, I implore the court to look at uh, what I have laid out in my brief and, and strongly consider that, at least from my perspective, this was not um, an impartial. Uh, uh, presentation before this grand jury. Uh, I'm asking the court to take as part of this the complete record of the grand jury proceedings. I'm asking the court to incorporate my brief and memorandum filed on the 8th and the two accompanying briefs as they only relate to the grand jury proceedings, Judge. But I think that if you take the opportunity to, to review my extensive briefing, uh, I would ask the court to uh, dismiss this indictment uh, on that basis. And thank you, Your Honor. I will now defer to Ms. Blake. All right, thank you, Mr. Pryor. Ms. Blake, what's the state's response on the motion? I need to unmute first. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, first of all, the state would indicate, as the court had mentioned at the outset of these proceedings, the state has not had an opportunity to get our brief submitted to the court. Uh, at the time that this hearing was set, I believe Mr. Pryor was given approximately 30 days, give or take, to submit a brief. Uh, we do recognize that Mr. Pryor absolutely timely filed that brief. He actually filed it a day in advance of the due date. Unfortunately, though, uh, we hadn't looked at the timing of that very closely, and it left the state with only two weeks and one day from the time we got it to this hearing today. So in order for the state to have actually put a brief together and given Mr. Pryor ample opportunity to review that, that was why the state had originally asked for a continuance, as the court indicated, you had authorized that the parties could seek to supplement any argument with briefing. We would indicate to the court we've been working diligently on a brief and we would intend to supplement the argument today with that brief. I'm not sure if the court wants to set a timeline on that, uh, when that would be due. I, I would like to set a timeline. If you've had a couple of weeks now to work on it, could that be uh, submitted within two weeks? Absolutely, Your Honor. And, and our hope is that we will actually have it submitted by the beginning of next week, uh, but we will continue to work diligently on getting that put together. Okay, just to be clear then, let's indicate that your brief will be due no later than Wednesday, April 6th at 5 o'clock p.m. And Your Honor, the state does recognize that this is defense's motion. I do not know if Mr. Pryor then wants an opportunity to provide any reply or if he wants to look at it at that time. If he does, I don't know if we also want to set a deadline for any reply brief, um, whether that be from that April 6th date or just from the filing date that the state actually submits our supplemental briefing. All right, <clears throat> Mr. Pryor, my inclination on that would be if you want to submit a uh, rebuttal brief to their response, 
uh, could you have that due a week later on April 13th? Judge, would it be possible to give me an additional seven days to the 20th? Uh, I anticipate a lengthy response from the state and I wanna make sure, I, well, I'm sorry about it. Okay, we can do that. So April 20th for any rebuttal or responsive brief filed by the defense, uh, five o'clock PM. will be your deadline for that, Mr. Pryor. Okay, Ms. Blake, then if you want to continue with the substance of your argument. Thank you, Your Honor. In looking specifically at the grand jury proceedings, there are several rules and statutes in Idaho which are directly applicable and govern those procedures, requirements, duties, and remedies in relation to grand juries. Those are Idaho Criminal Rule 6 through 6.8, and Idaho Code Title 10, Chapters 10 through 16. So in large part, those are what the statutes and rules that the state is going to focus on today. Specifically turning to Idaho Criminal Rule 6.6, .6, that specifically provides the grounds on which a motion to dismiss the indictment may be granted, and it lays out very specific grounds. Again, to not belabor the point, I think only a few of those are what was focused on by the defendant. Um, and actually really the second one, that a valid challenge to an individual juror who served on the grand jury that found the indictment, except that finding of the valid challenge to one or more members of the grand jury is not grounds for dismissal of the indictment if there are 12 or more qualified jurors concurring in the finding of the indictment. Then when we turn to the Idaho Code, uh, looking at the first section, 19-1001, uh, it lays out that the people or person held to answer a charge for a public offense may challenge the panel of a grand jury or an individual juror. Idaho Code 19-1002 outlines the very specific grounds for challenge to a panel. And then when we turn to 19, Idaho Code 19-1003, that's where we get the outline for the grounds that are allowed to challenge an individual juror that served on a grand jury. Again, there are several challenges laid out, and I think the focus of the defense has been on subsection six and seven um, regarding six, that he has formed or expressed an unqualified opinion or belief that the defendant is guilty or not guilty of the offense charged, but a hypothetical opinion founded on hearsay or information supposed to be true, accompanied with malice, unaccompanied with malice or ill will, shall not disqualify a grand juror or be cause of challenge. And then seven, that a state of mind exists on his part in reference to the case or to either party, which satisfies the court that he cannot act impartially and without prejudice to the substantial rights of the party challenging. Idaho Code 19-1601 also lays out the grounds for setting aside an indictment and includes uh, very specific reasons for which a challenge or an indictment could be set aside. And again, not belaboring those, there are four different challenges laid out and looking at number four, when the defendant has not been held to answer before the finding of the indictment 
on any ground which would have been ground for challenge either to the panel or to any individual grand juror. So what we can see is between the criminal rules and the statutes, there is some overlap when we're looking uh, at challenges to an indictment. And one of the common themes that comes up is a challenge to the individual grand juror or the panel of the grand jury. And that's really been the focus at this point in time on the defense's request to dismiss the indictment. Looking at State v. Edmondson, 113 Idaho 230, specifically provides the grand jury is an accusing body and not a trial court. Its functions are investigative and charging. Goes on to say the purpose of a grand jury proceeding is to determine whether sufficient probable cause exists to bind the defendant over for trial. The determination of guilt or innocence is saved for a later day. As long as the grand jury has received legally sufficient evidence, which in and of itself supports a finding of probable cause. In addition, in Edmondson, the court provided, we note that dismissal is a drastic remedy and should be exercised only in extreme and outrageous situations, and therefore the defendant has a heavy burden. So in these situations with a motion to dismiss or set aside an indictment, the burden is on the defendant and the courts have found that it absolutely is a heavy burden and that an actual dismissal of an indictment is an extreme remedy. And one of the things that um, is touched on briefly um, or is brought up in the defend by the defendant is an allegation of prosecutorial prosecutorial misconduct. While the state takes the position that there absolutely was no prosecutorial misconduct, and that'll be outlined more clearly in our brief, but if Legally sufficient evidence was presented. The indictment must be dismissed if prosecutorial misconduct in submitting illegal evidence was so egregious as to have a prejudicial effect on the proceeding. And that comes from State v. Forbes, and that's an unpublished opinion, um, 2020 IDA, APP, Lexus 352, and 2020 WL 53. 61067, and that is citing to State v. Martinez, 125 Idaho 445. And on that initial first site, what was the name of the uh, party there, or the defendant in that first part of the site? It Last is uh, State v. Forbes, F-O-R-B-E-S. Okay, thank you. And that case specifically cites to Martinez. It also cites to State v. Brandstetter. Um, in State v. State v. Brownsetter, the citation is 127 Idaho 885, and that citation deals with the court accepting that in making a determination, every legitimate inference that may be drawn from the evidence must be drawn in favor of the indictment. Oftentimes what we see with case law is the evidence or um, the evidence or any inference is oftentimes drawn in favor of the defendant. However, when dealing with an indictment, Forbes references it and Brandstetter also sets out that legitimate inference 
should be drawn in favor of the indictment. The state recognizes that those specific cases were dealing with whether or not uh, appropriate evidence was admitted or whether any inadmissible evidence was presented to the grand jury. And what we see repeatedly with court's analysis regarding that specific issue is so long, even if there is inadmissible evidence submitted, so long as there's enough evidence striking the inadmissible evidence, the indictment will stand. And that case talks specifically about the prosecutorial misconduct as well, that even if it's alleged, it has to be egregious. And not only does it have to be egregious, but the defendant needs to establish that based on that misconduct, he suffered some form of prejudice. And again, that burden remains on the defendant to establish that, not the state uh, to establish it didn't happen. But again, the state's position is there was no prosecutorial misconduct. Then looking at a case from the Ninth Circuit, Silverthorne v. United States, that's 400 F 2D 627. It also outlines that the grand jury deliberates and indicts as an accusing body on the standard of reasonable probability that a crime has been committed by some person. It is not a trial body. The quantum of evidence necessary to indict is not as great as that necessary to convict. If a grand jury is prejudiced by outside sources, when in fact there is insufficient evidence to indict, the greatest safeguard to the liberty of the accused is the pettit jury and the rules governing its determination of a defendant's guilt or innocence. And if impartiality among the pettit jurors is wanting, the cure is reversal by the appellate courts. And I cite to that case because throughout the defendant's brief, um, initially the Idaho code and criminal rules that were cited to by the state are cited to by the defendant. However, as the argument continues forward, most of the case law cited deals specifically with impartiality or actual or impartial or implied bias on the part of grand juror or excuse me, jurors that were sitting on a PETA or a trial jury rather than a grand jury. And I'm not sure of I'm unaware of any case law or other statute or rule that would make the same analysis applicable to the grand jury. And what we see in Silverthorne is the distinction between a pettit and a grand jury, and that oftentimes the pettit jury actually hearing the case is the safeguard and may even be the remedy, even if there is found to be any defect with regard to an indictment or how the indictment came about. Idaho Criminal Rule 6C provides in part that the district judge is the one that panels, that is in charge of impaneling a grand jury, and that that district judge also has the opportunity to inquire of the prospective grand jurors and to determine whether or not they are qualified to serve. It goes on to lay out that specifically there are two things that the court looks to to determine if they're unqualified to sit as a grand jury. And one of those is Idaho Code 19-1003, which again outlines the specific standard applied when looking at whether or not a grand juror was improper to be seated. And again, um, indicating that is a different standard than what is applied to a grand juror that may not be seated or that a challenge may be made or what challenges may be made if they are sat on a trial jury or a pettit jury. And those are Idaho code 
19-2020. They do allow for different challenges jurors. Again, focusing back on the heightened burden that a jury trial is actually tasked with. And Idaho criminal rule 6.1B is where, which that's the rule that provides in part that the prosecuting attorney has the power and duty to um, also investigate and inquire whether or not there are grounds for disqualification of any grand juror and advise the presiding juror of the possible disqualification of a juror. So the voir dire process through and jury proceedings is very different than through the trial proceedings. There actually is no inherent right under the Idaho criminal rules that the prosecuting attorney even has the opportunity to conduct for dire. In this situation, the prosecuting attorney did have that opportunity, but it is not specifically the prosecuting attorney has the right or the duty at the commencement of the presentation of an investigation. And that's in large part because a grand jury may see, may sit and hear multiple cases, and each case may be different. A grand juror may have a disqualification for one case that may be presented to them or for certain evidence, but be able to sit for other cases and other evidence. All right, Ms. Ms. Blay, and I think that's kind of an important point to consider. So you're indicating that the because clearly in a in a trial with pettit jurors. You've got a vetting of those jurors through the voir dire process conducted by both sides in a grand jury proceeding. Obviously, the defense is not present, and there still needs to be some sort of gatekeeper function to make sure you have fair and unbiased jurors that sit as grand jurors. And so uh, you're saying that under Echo 19-1003, there's a different standard applied to challenging grand jurors or or uh, we wouldn't call it voir dire because it's not really that, but to uh, essentially vetting out those jurors that may not be qualified? Yes, Your Honor. When you look at those specific rules, they actually outline different reasons for which a challenge can be made to a juror. So 19-1003 has seven possible challenges that are outlined, which can be brought to a challenge an individual juror. Specifically, there is some reference in the defendant's brief to the grounds for challenge under 19-2020, which actually lay out the challenges for a pettit or a trial jury, where the challenges allowed are different. And from what the state can discern from looking through case law, it appears that a large part of that differentiation is that the grand jurors, again, are just an investigative body and they're only making a probable cause determination. They're not making a finding of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. They're not stuck with that uh, paramount decision that is made by an actual pettit or trial jury. We can find no case law to support that the same standards would be applicable to the seating of a grand jury. And I think the statutes actually uh, tend to clear up that issue because they are separated out and those challenges are different. Okay, I appreciate the response. And so to, and, and to summarize, you'd say, essentially it's a lower standard for seating a pettit juror versus a trial juror? 
Yes. Uh, when you look at what the challenges are laid out, um, it does appear to be that there is a lesser standard because there are other remedies available um, short of just dismissal or setting aside a verdict if that's where it ended up with a pettit jury or a trial jury. Whereas with the grand jury, there are some other remedies available. And again, one of the remedies highlighted in several cases is the ultimate remedy to cure a defect um, if the court, unless the court determines an additional remedy is necessary, would be to actually have all of the evidence heard before a, a pettit jury that is impartial and making that final determination. Okay, thanks for those responses. You can continue. Thank you. Um, and again, uh, the state doesn't want to get too much into some of the specifics, recognizing that the grand jury uh, is a sealed proceeding. But I would mention that from the state's review of things, and again, this will be discussed more in depth in our brief, but from a review of the transcript from the grand jury proceedings, uh, the state's view on that is the court did repeatedly ask follow-up questions at times to group and at times to individuals who raised their hands in response to a question. And oftentimes those questions dealt with the juror's ability to remain open-minded, fair, and impartial. The state did the same. Because again, while the state can't find a rule on point, absolutely giving the state the opportunity to conduct for dire, we were allowed to conduct it in regard to seating the grand jury. So it is the state's position that both the district court and the state did conduct proper voir dire and did follow up where necessary to ensure that an impartial and unbiased grand jury was in fact seated. Um, also, and in State v. Dunlap, um, the court dealt specifically with voir dire and capital cases. And State v. Dunlap is 155 Idaho 345. And it states, while there is no absolute constitutional right to individual voir dire in capital cases, the method of voir dire must comport with due process requirements. So again, that case is actually dealing with the seating of a pettit jury versus a grand jury, but it indicates that there is actually no heightened right in a capital case over another case, but that it simply should comport with the due process requirements as any other criminal case should. I think there is some argument, and again, the state will be brief on this because I think it goes into some of the grand jury proceedings, but there is an argument raised regarding uh, the potential of jurors having a relationship with a party or a witness. Um, and the case on point is that the state has found would be state v. Buhanda Velazquez, and that is 129 Idaho 726. And in that case, they did specifically analyze uh, relationships between grand jurors and the prosecuting attorney and whether or not there actually existed a relationship. And that case also cites to a couple other cases where the same analysis was conducted to determine whether or not a relationship between a juror 
and an attorney would be a basis for disqualification. In State v. Cipher, 92 Idaho 159, the court upheld the trial court's denial of a challenge for cause of a prospective juror who was, at the time of trial, employed by the prosecuting attorney's firm as a janitor. The court held that such a prescribed relationship must be shown to exist between the juror and accused or the person allegedly injured by the offense charged. And then also State v. Major, 105 Idaho 4, the court cited to cipher and held that a relationship between a prospective juror who was a county treasurer and the prosecuting attorney was not that of attorney client and thus did not suffice to disqualify the juror. And then in State v. Bohanda, Velazquez, the court determined as well that there was no impropriety in a juror being sat where the defense alleged that that juror had failed to disclose during Vordire a close and or business relationship with two prosecutors, one who presented to the grand jury and one who just worked in the office. They ultimately, the Supreme, the Idaho Supreme Court ultimately determined that the proper standard was applied in denying the motion to dismiss because there was no actual evidence uh, to support a relationship between the defendant, uh, excuse me, with the defendant or the prosecuting attorney, and that it was not such that would have affected that juror's ability to be seated. Um, again, there are specifics uh, that the state will simply provide in their brief. Um, there are several arguments made by the defendant with regard to individual jurors, and the state believes that all of those jurors were appropriately seated and uh, that they would not be, they wouldn't need to have been removed. And again, when we look back at the rule, even if the court did find any merit uh, in any of the defendant's arguments, so long as there remain 12 jurors uh, that return a unanimous indictment, uh, the indictment would stand. And again, I just highlight that um, throughout the briefing, Idaho Code 19-2020 is referenced when arguing challenges to specific grand jurors. But again, the applicable section uh, is Idaho Code 19-1003. However, I would indicate the state's position is even if Idaho Code 19-2020 were applicable, to grand jury proceedings, it is the state's position that the grand jurors are still proper and qualified and uh, grand jurors. And again, that will be briefed, more fully briefed. And sorry, Judge, I'm just going over some stuff that I do not think would be appropriate to uh, put on the public record at this time. One of the other uh, um, arguments raised is that there is an incomplete record of the grand jury proceedings. Idaho Criminal Rule 6.2a provides all proceedings of the grand jury except deliberations must be recorded either stenographically or electronically. The defendant alleges the recordings were stopped at times. Um, 
And the state would indicate that we believe the proceedings were properly recorded, that there is no rule or statute, again, that the state can locate, which would indicate that a recording should continue to be played if the prosecutors are conducting any kind of sidebar amongst themselves and or if the parties are entering into a break. The defendant cites to Dustin v. Superior Court, uh, which citation is 99 Cal APP 4th 1311 as a grounds to have an indictment dismissed based on the recording not being complete. The state would specifically distinguish that case from the case in front of this court in Dustin v. Superior Court the real concern was the prosecuting attorney had actually requested or instructed, excuse me, the court reporter to leave during both the prosecutor's opening and closing statements to the grand jury. The court in that case um, essentially determined it would be difficult to imagine an innocent reason for the court reporter to be instructed to leave during the prosecutor's comments, except for that the prosecutor didn't want those to be reviewed later. And even in that situation, um, and that case also was a little different in the sense that they were looking specifically to the fact that it was a capital case. And so capital cases should be conducted on the record. California did not have a specific rule with regard to the recording of the grand jury proceedings. Idaho does require those proceedings be recorded. The state also recognizes the law regarding capital cases. And it is the state's position that those were properly recorded. The defendant has had an opportunity to look over those transcripts and has clearly raised um, some allegations based on his review of that transcript. And then looking at Idaho Code 19-1605, It provides that even if an indictment is set aside under these grounds, specifically referring to the um, above statutes, so with the the challenges to the impanelment or the individual grand jurors or the other grounds which would allow for review of an indictment and for it to be set aside, it is not a bar to a future prosecution. In addition, when we look at Idaho Criminal Rule 48, which deals with dismissals, Um, It indicates that a court may, on notice to all parties, dismiss the criminal action on its own motion or a motion of either party, um, and it provides the grounds, and uh, that includes for any other reason if the court concludes that dismissal will serve the ends of justice, but an order for dismissal is not a bar to a subsequent prosecution for the same felony offense. It would bar a prosecution for the same offense if it were a misdemeanor, but not if it is a felony. And then in a federal district court, specifically the district, uh, the court for the District of the Virgin Islands, in a recent decision, U.S. v. Benjamin, 2019 U.S. Dist, so D-I-S-T, Lexus 173202, and 2019 WL4920875 also looked at the remedies 
and provide consistent with the impracticality of other remedies concept embodied in both structural and harmless error analysis, the Supreme Court has recognized that defects in criminal proceedings, including those implicating constitutional rights, do not necessarily warrant the ultimate remedy of dismissal of an indictment, let alone dismissal with prejudice, where remedies short of dismissal are available. And the, in that case, cites to United States v. Morrison and adopts their language. So again, uh, just in conclusion, uh, it is the state's position that there is there are no grounds that have been established by the defendant which would support the finding that the indictment needs to be set aside. And that even if the indict, even if the court were to find any grounds to set aside the indictment, complete dismissal and or precluding the state from proceeding forward with another indictment would not be supported by the findings of other cases that have reviewed uh, situations of this nature. And then again, that the defendant does in fact have the burden and that that burden should be established under the appropriate um, standards set forth by the Idaho legislature and in the Idaho criminal rules. And the state has outlined those today. They will be again, more fully outlined in our brief. And we would reiterate our request to just submit that supplemental briefing. The state has already granted that, but we will uh, get that submitted as soon as we can so that the court has that uh, for review. Um, lastly, I, I do wanna touch on this actually. Um, reiterating- I do, I do have a follow-up question on the issue uh, you've argued on the sufficiency of the record. And it's a pretty specific question. There's a part of uh, Mr. Pryor's briefing where, uh, and I'll just reference you to that, and it's, it's on page 10, where he indicates that uh, the defense should be entitled to not just the role of juror numbers and on the voting role, jurors identified only by number, but that those particular jurors and their votes should be identified by name also. Uh, does the state believe that is part of the record that the defense is entitled to in the jury voting roles? Your Honor, I think what the, my recollection is what the rule outlines, and I believe it's, I don't have it right in front of me, but I believe it's outlined in the Idaho criminal rules that provides that a defendant can have an opportunity to review the voting sheets. Um, in addition, there's a rule that outlines that at the conclusion of any grand jury proceedings um, prior to an indictment either being found or not found, that the voting list should be placed into a sealed envelope. Uh, at the outset, grand jurors are assigned specific numbers, and so the voting sheet, it's my understanding, contains those individual numbers. Those numbers are assigned to a specific grand juror. I do believe the defense, I will say it this way, actually, I I'm unaware of anything that would specifically allow or specifically prohibit the defense from obtaining the names associated with those juror numbers um, because the state would have had the benefit of knowing which juror number was assigned to which juror. It would reason, it would follow practical reasoning to the state that the defense could make that request and would be authorized and allowed to, to review that information as part of the entire uh, entirety of the record. So the state does recognize the voting sheet would not have contained that, but I'm unaware of anything that prohibits the defense from asking for that or from, 
or that would prohibit the court from granting it. And again, because the state has that knowledge, it would seem that the defendant should be allowed to review that information as well. Okay, well, I appreciate the response on that issue. And then the last point um, I just wanted to touch on again was looking at that Idaho Code um, 1003 with regard to um, a challenge to an individual juror. I would just reiterate specifically that a hypothetical opinion founded on hearsay or information supposed to be true, unaccompanied with malice or ill will, shall not disqualify a grand juror. I think there were some challenges raised based on. Um, pre-trial publicity. Uh, Mr. Pryor touched on that briefly today, and I know it was uh, covered more in depth in his brief, but I don't, but I think without more of a showing than simply a statement that there was pre-trial publicity, and because a juror had viewed that, that that must affect their ability to sit as an impartial juror, is clearly, I, I think that situation was somewhat anticipated by the writing of that rule, not this specific situation, but that a situation would arise in which a juror would have heard some outside information or seen some kind of news coverage, but so long as they can set that aside, and um, I think that that is covered. So I would just reiterate that because I think that was one of the other main points raised by the defense in their brief. Again, we'll more fully brief this, um, especially where we can get a little more into the specifics of this without violating any kind of grand jury uh, process. We'll cover that more specifically in our brief. All right, thank you, Ms. Blake. So does that conclude the state's argument, Ms. Blake? That does, Your Honor, unless the court has any additional questions. Okay, thank you. Uh, Mr. Pryor, would you like to offer a rebuttal argument? Very briefly, Judge. Uh, I, I noted, Judge, that at least a significant portion of Ms. Blake's argument centered around the evidence that was presented to the grand jury. Uh, if the court looks at my brief, the vast majority of my argument, Judge, is the fairness and impartiality of the grand jury itself. And I'm going to rest on the evidence and the, uh, uh, the uh, Evidence is the wrong word, Judge. I'm going to rest on the contents of my brief in terms of what I presented to the court and the, and the attached uh, uh, references to the, the transcript itself. I do want to touch on something, Judge, in terms of the incomplete record. Uh, Ms. Blake and Mr. Wood and uh, Ms. Smith do not get to decide uh, what portion of the grand jury proceedings I get and what portion I have to specifically request. That's not the way the rule works, and, and, and it's somewhat concerning to me that Ms. Blake would suggest to the court that Mr. Pryor at any time can make a request for additional information. That's not the way it works, Judge. Uh, Mr. Daybell is entitled to the complete record of the grand jury proceedings. Now, I brought that issue up, and I've referenced where I feel that there has not been a complete record provided to me. And I brought up a couple of instances where that I believe, and we strongly believe, that's the case. Uh, but again, Judge, I'm entitled to that information. And it's not a matter of me requesting uh, additional information or requesting supplement or just requesting information that this prosecutor has and has access to. If the suggestion from Ms. Blake is that, uh, Judge, if I want to challenge any specific juror for cause, uh, you'll need to request that information to find out who they are 
so that you'll have an opportunity to do that. That's not the way it works, Judge. That's absolutely contra contradictory to what the rule is set out and the way this thing is supposed to work. Which, which rule specifically are you referring to, Mr. Pryor? Well, Judge, Rule 6.6 .6 of the Idaho Criminal Rules allows me to challenge any juror for cause. Uh, and I'm allowed to do that. And I assume that it would be presumed, Judge, that in order to challenge a specific jury for cause, I should be able to know who they are. I should be able to know what their name is. I should be able to know some information. Now, I did in detail in this brief point out issues that I have with specific jurors. And again, I'm not going to go into that. Um, uh, but the fact is, is that in order to adequately do that, I would assume that it'd be presumed that I'm allowed to have that information beforehand, and that it's not something that I have to continue to, re continue to request. And I draw, draw a parallel between this judge. Uh, the state is under an obligation to provide me all the discovery. And there'll be some, some subsequent uh, um, motions addressing that. But they're under an obligation to provide me the information. I would assume, Judge, they're under the same obligation, uh, at least to, uh, to make sure that I have a complete record of the grand jury proceedings. And Judge, I don't want to belabor this, but I think I laid it out in my brief, and I'll ask the court to, to examine that. Uh, but the vast majority of the cases that Ms. Blake referenced, Judge, simply addressed sufficiency of evidence. They did not suggest that uh, in no way I could challenge the sufficiency of and the qualifications of the grand jury. And Judge, I'm going to rest on my brief. I think it was sufficient for the court to see that, at least from my perspective and Mr. Daybell's perspective, the grand jury that was impaneled was not fair. They were not impartial. And I'd ask the court to strike the grand jury proceedings and dismiss this action, Your Honor. All right. Thanks for and the. Go ahead, Ms. Blake. Sorry, if I can just clarify, because it was a question raised by the court. Um, I did find the rule, it's Idaho Criminal Rule 6.5 that addresses getting access to the voting sheets. And what I want to clarify is um, the state would have no problem providing uh, the names that would associate with the numbers. I believe we still have a record of that. The court would have a record of that as well. The problem is, and why that is not provided, is the state is, the grand jury proceedings that are secret and there are many rules governing those and the state is not allowed to provide information regarding those. So the only reason that the state had referenced that a request may be made to the court is either way, whether the court provides that information or whether it comes from the state, it's the state's understanding in looking at the rules governing grand jury proceedings that we can't disclose information without order of the court. Um, I understand Mr. Pryor's point, it's well taken, but I just wanted to clarify, this is not a situation where the state is trying to withhold that information by any means, um, but it would be information that would either need to be provided by the court or that the state would need to be authorized to provide from the state's interpretation of those rules and statutes. Okay, I appreciate that final clarification. Um, Council, I'll consider this matter submitted as to oral argument on that final remaining issue where there's still uh, a follow-up supplemental brief provided for, for the defense, I am going to order at this hearing that uh, based on Idaho Criminal Rule 6.5 and a request made by the defense that there's an authorization for the voting rolls to be revealed in terms of identifying 
jurors by name and not only by juror number. So that information will need to be provided and I'll authorize that. If you would submit an order to that effect, Mr. Pryor, I'll get that signed so that the uh, administrators of the case in Fremont County and the clerks are able to supply that information, which I presume is held there at the courthouse. That'll be the only uh, ruling I'll make on the issue for today. Um, I will indicate that on the supplemental briefing that's being submitted by both sides, given the nature of the secrecy of grand jury proceedings and for the reasons already determined, allowing for the filing of uh, the first brief under seal, I will order that those supplemental briefs also be filed under seal. And if you could each with your brief, just submit an appropriate order also indicating that uh, the matter needs to be sealed and citing the information as uh, being secret under the criminal rules as it relates to grand juries, then we will file those under seal and that will uh, take care of that administrative process as well. So I'll wait to see the remaining briefs and take the matter under advisement. The court will then issue a written decision after it's been fully submitted. Uh, Mr. Pryor, anything further on your motion this morning? Nothing further, Judge. May we have permission to be excused? Yes, thank you, Mr. Pryor. Ms. Blake, anything further from the state? Nothing further at this time, Your Honor. Thank you. All right, counsel, thanks for your preparation this morning and your arguments, and we will be in recess. All right. Well, <clears throat> uh, that was interesting and a, a little difficult to listen to. I think most of you uh, in the chat have indicated that as well. So let me make sure you understand what's happening here. The jury that they're talking about is the grand jury. Not a regular trial jury, but a grand jury. Grand juries have different rules than regular trials. Uh, their job is investigative. It is not um, to, you know, like bring a ruling or bring a, a conviction. So their job is to hear all of the evidence and determine whether or not someone should be indicted for what they've done. Is there enough evidence to take them to trial? So it's the same thing as a preliminary hearing would have, which a judge would then rule on, only this is a jury that rules on it. Now, the defense does not get to know about that. The grand jury is, um, is, is secret. It's private from the defense. And whether, you know, John Pryor likes that or not, that is the law. Um, also, they don't go through the same vetting process for those jurors because basically they're saying... If this jury says there's enough evidence to indict, then there will be a second jury that has been fully vetted that will determine guilt or innocence. So Pryor is trying to say that the grand jury was seated incorrectly and that, you know, he didn't he's he's mad because he didn't get to be part of this. Basically, um, the thing is, grand juries do not work the same way as regular jury trials. And I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from with this. It's just a lot of complaining on his part, but ultimately the state can impanel a grand jury whenever they want to. And, you know, he said he didn't think this was the right way to go about these charges. Well, it's not up to him. It's not up to him at all. Um, there were, I think, some very specific reasons why um, the state sought a grand jury on this case. And 
a huge part of it was to get testimony from people who did not want to testify publicly, including Chad's children, including friends of Chad and Lori. There was information that they were able to glean there that they wouldn't have gotten in a public preliminary hearing. So, you know, this argument basically is that the grand jury wasn't impartial enough for um, John Pryor's liking. The bottom line is that it doesn't have to be because no one's been convicted of anything. This is evidentiary. It's not it's not for conviction. So, you know, basically what the prosecutor was trying to say there, and, you know, you got to give Lindsay Blake a little bit of a break. She's a brand new prosecutor and steps into this quagmire of a case. And and you got to know that the prosecutors in this area have not had a case like this ever. So they're all learning as they go. And um, so she was, it was taking her a little while to get the information out. She was also censoring herself as she went because they very specifically said that you can't reveal any specific information about jurors or anything that happened in the grand jury proceedings. But, you know, basically what she's presenting is what the state law requires for grand juries versus trial juries. And so there's a big difference, but he doesn't seem to get that or he just doesn't want to get it. So we'll see what happens here. Um, He obviously wants to see the names of the individual jurors and their uh, and how they voted which apparently he can see. He's always mad at the prosecution for not giving him something, but then it often turns out that it's something that he actually has to ask for. And that's this case in this case, because grand jury stuff is secret and there's only certain things that the prosecution is allowed to release unless a judge says it's okay. And that's what we're dealing with right here. So there's a lot more to come on this. Um, But don't, think that this is the end of this case because it's not. It is very unusual for a grand jury's indictment to be thrown out. And just because um, John Pryor doesn't, doesn't like how it happened or that it did happen doesn't mean that there was anything wrong with the way the proceedings were handled. So that's what we're going to see coming from the judge. And it's going to take a while, obviously to um, get those briefs back and, you know, for him to rule on this. I got to say, though, I am not worried that this will prevail. Um, I'm not worried about it at all. These are just these are the kinds of complaints that a defense attorney will make, but they're not necessarily grounded in the law. And, And so Pryor's real good at saying, I don't like this or this isn't fair or this is wrong or whatever. But the bottom line is, it doesn't really matter unless it violated the law. And and I don't think anything here actually did. Yeah, she was, yeah, she's doing better. But, you know, she's still learning from all of this. Yeah, and, and yeah, wild accusations with no proof. Exactly. He doesn't have any proof, and that's the problem here. And this is this is Pryor's M.O. over and over again. And Mark Means did the same. They make wild accusations with no proof. So we will see what happens. 
um, with this, but obviously we're not going to get a ruling on it for about four weeks because of the time frame that the judge set out. But it is um, just <laughs> part of this ridiculous process. And yeah, I agree with you guys. It is slow. It is frustrating. But the judge doesn't have a lot of choice when it comes down to these things. He does have to address them all. Um, why the why the prosecution wasn't ready today and couldn't have been ready today, I don't know. And I really wish they were. I am a little disappointed in that today. Yeah, yeah. Pryor, no, I don't think Pryor's a happy family man either. Not at all. He's a very difficult person. And he's had he's got his own history of being accused of sexual misconduct and just, you know, stuff. So he's not a great guy. But we'll see what happens here. I mean, this is the kind of nitpicky stuff they're going to continue to do because they don't have any other defense. That's the thing we have to keep remembering is just because John Pryor says it does not make it true. And so far, there's a pretty good track record of the court not agreeing with him, you know. So don't get too scared that this is, you know, going to affect the long term um, parts of this case because it's not. Don't don't get don't get afraid. We're We're just doing exactly what is supposed to happen in a situation like this. And um, <clears throat> eventually things are going to roll forward. So we do know there has been a sealed um, order filed in regards to Lori. It happened yesterday. And so we're still awaiting. You know, they're not going to announce that she is out of the hospital and back in the jail until she's actually there. So to avoid problems with people on the way. So it's possible that that's what's happening here. We don't know, but we're going to keep our eye on it and we will let you know. So I want to say thank you to all of you for joining us today. If you're here live or if you're here after the fact, the legal system can be boring and frustrating, but these are all important parts of making sure that these two murderers never see the light of day again. And that's really the ultimate goal. So we will be back tonight at 7 p.m. Mountain for tonight, Wednesday, for uh, case updates. So we have lots of updates for you. So be sure to join us for that. And as always, you have been listening to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. Thanks for being here. <laughs>